Well, clearly, COVID has messed up a lot of our plans this year, as our plan was to return to Nairobi, Kenya, um, in June of this year. Another team would have been preparing to go out at the first of 2021, um, teams to the very streets that this video uh, was shot on. And while we don't know exactly when, we will return. Um, it's not it's not a matter of if, it is when. And Yes, again, COVID has messed up a lot of our plans, but it has not for a second messed up God's plans. There is nothing in this entire season that has caught God off guard. And, and just because we cannot be there in person right now doesn't mean that the mission does not continue. As our gifts through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering go directly to funding missionaries on the field, not only in Kenya, but around the world. So I ask for you and your family to do two things in this season. One, make this week a week of prayer for, for the work that is taking place in, in Kenya. Pray for the missionaries, pray for the people, pray for these boys, not just to have a roof over their head, but to know the, the saving love that is found in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Two, pray for how you can give above and beyond your, your regular tithes and offerings, even in this season, um, to, that will go directly to impact the mission work that is taking place um, around the world in places such as this. Places that have literally never heard the gospel or what they have heard is uh, not a, a true gospel in many cases. But in considering God's plan, in considering God's plans in the midst of seasons of uncertainty, um, go ahead and would and open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter three, Luke chapter three, and as you do, uh, today marks the official start of Advent. Um, if you're not familiar with Advent, Advent is a it serves as a season of anticipation. Um, obviously, you can think of a, of a child anticipating, longing for a Christmas morning. Um, in a similar sense, and in a much more important sense, we find ourselves in a season of anticipation, a season of reflection, a reflection, a season of waiting. And as Christians, um, we do both anticipate and reflect and celebrate. We, we reflect on uh, in the midst of the season, we reflect in the season because we know Christ has already come. We're reflecting on that truth. And as a result, Knowing this, reflecting on this, we, we can see the mystery of the gospel that we looked at in Ephesians, how it has been revealed. We understand the good news, which is the praise of God's glorious grace. But we, like those who anxiously awaited for the long prophesied Messiah's arrival in the Old Testament, that we too are in a season of waiting. We are in a season of longing. We're waiting and we're longing for, for Christ to return and to make all things new. Because that's, that's the very thing that he has promised to do. So in Scripture, if it teaches us anything, and it teaches us many things, if it teaches us anything, it's that God always keeps his promises. He is always true to his word. The nations will hear the good news. Peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation will believe the gospel. See, the frustration we all feel right now with the pandemic, politics, world events, is, is the constant reminder that this world is not our home. It's the constant reminder that when we see a video like this, it's like it's not supposed to be this way. 
of us, we're homesick. We're homesick for something better, whether we realize that or not. It's like it's not supposed to be this way. We're, we're longing for the promised land. We, as God's people, are longing to be with God, in God's place, under God's rule, receiving his blessings for all eternity. And days such that we're presently living in only increase this longing. And so to fix our eyes and our hearts upon this promise, the promises of God, the sufficiency of God, we turn our attention to the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. If you would, follow along with me. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsli, the son of Nagai, the son of Mahath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kassam, the son of Elmenadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mahath, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mele, the son of Mena, the son of Mattathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sirach, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mehaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, we can finish reading a genealogy like this, and we can walk away from them thinking that's boring and that's irrelevant. Why do we read this? We might just skip right over it. But it's not. For one, there's no part of Scripture that is irrelevant. None. And two, it's anything but boring because when what we have before us in these 16 verses that summarize God's entire plan of redemption, everything from, from Genesis forward summed up in these 16 verses with, with each and every person representing a branch, a part of God's big picture, the big story of redemption, the Bible. So what we're going to do today is help bring this genealogy into perspective, into to, to life. We're, we're going to take this family tree and we're going to look at how each branch, not every single one of them, but some branches along the way help comprise the whole. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to kind of go backwards here. We're going to start in verse 38 and we're going to work our way backwards to verse 23 which will move us again from Genesis all the way to the New Testament, from God eternal to God incarnate, God in the flesh, until this big unfolding story 
that unveils the meaning of Christmas as we start Advent. So with that said, today is going to look a little different, not going to have the typical sermon points to kind of hold on to along the way. But here's what, you, here's what I want you to do as we go through. I want you to follow along and I want you to listen and, and write down as you listen and as you follow along, write down or think of the things that, that bring anxiety. And the things that are stressing you out right now cause you to lose sleep at night. Past sins that may be beating yourself up over. And I'm not asking you to do this to cause you more stress and more anxiety. Like great pastor wants me to to think about my my sin. He wants me to think about my anxiety. That's all I need right now is to think about that more. It's like it's all consuming on me at this present time. I don't want you to think about it like that. No, what I want, I want you to see these things. The anxieties that we all feel. The uncertainties that we all have, the fears that we have, the, the past sin that we have, that we have trouble moving past, seeing the grace of God lavished upon us in our life. I want you to see these things in light of God's unfolding story, the grace upon grace that we see throughout Scripture. And I pray that the truths we see today from God's Word will comfort your weary soul. So keep one finger in Luke and then turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be moving fast. But Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where we're told in the beginning, God. It's like the triune God of the Bible. He created the heavens and the earth. Why? Why did he do it? Because he wanted to. He didn't have to, didn't need to, wasn't compelled to by some outside thing. It was no outside thing. He was it, God, only, it's it. And he wanted to. He wanted to create. Why? To bring himself glory. And when he completed his creation, he, he declared it to be very good especially the pinnacle of his creation, which is what? People. People are the pinnacle of his creation. He he created us in, in his image and in his likeness. Why? Again, for his glory, for his delight. Think about that. The people were created for the delight of God. And then in Genesis 1, 28 through 30, we're, we're told God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 29, and God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree and seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps in the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. So God is literally telling Adam and Eve here to be his representatives on earth. He's telling them to multiply themselves and subdue all of creation to live in complete obedience to God, to his word. 
So whether it's the fish or whether it's plants or birds or their own offspring, everything is given to them to do with as exactly as God has commanded. There was only one thing they were not allowed to do. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 tell us, The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now what do they do? Well, we know what they do. Well, like a couple of disobedient children, they do the one thing, the one thing they were explicitly told not to do, and they eat of the tree. And as a result, sin entered the world. And death and evil became a reality. God's judgment against his creation was then enacted, and Adam and Eve were, were cast out of the garden, separated from the presence of God. But it's right here. It's right here in the midst of God's judgment that we see salvation coming forth. It's the first hints of the gospel. As God tells Satan in Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But then what happens with Eve's offspring? Well, Cain goes on and he kills Abel, doesn't he? He gets banished to the east of where they're at now even further away from God. So the natural question is, how in the world, how in the world is Eve's offspring going to crush the head of this nasty snake? How's this promise going to be fulfilled? You got one son who's dead and the other one who's a banished murderer. Like, it seems like all hope is lost here. So How? Ah, Genesis chapter 4, after Cain had killed Abel, we're told in verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enos. So picking up with the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, again going in reverse, we're told Enos fathered Canaan, and Canaan fathered Mahalil, and Mahalil fathered Jared, and Jared fathered Enoch, who the, the Bible tells us never died. He just walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. What a way to go, right? Like just be walking with God, living your life, walking with God, and you're gone. God takes you away out of the sinful world and you're with God. Oh, what a way to go. But also a beautiful reminder in the midst of judgment of God's grace. How in the midst of such death, everyone else in the genealogy, remember, like he died, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. But Enoch walked with God and then he was not. For God took him. Friends, this is a, a sneak peek, a reminder that God's grace has the power to overcome sin and death. There is hope in the midst of darkness for those who walk with God. But while Enoch walked with God, he, he fathered Methuselah, who ended up being the oldest person to ever live. 
dying at the ripe old age of 969 years of age. And during those 969 years, he no doubt fathered a lot of babies in that period of time. But one of those babies was Lamech, who would go on to father Noah. Now, that's the name most of us are familiar with, as the story of Noah is a story that's been told and retold generation after generation. It's a story we've sentimentalized with our, with our pictures and our toys and our murals on nursery walls. But in all reality, the flood was one of the most horrific events in all of human history. And at the same time, it's a totally righteous act of God's judgment as the flood represents one of the four great judgments of the Bible. You have four great judgments in the Bible, the flood being one of them, but the first one was the fall of Adam and the curse that came as a result. You also have the cross of Christ and the one that we await that is coming. It's the final judgment that is still to come. But notice this. It's a judgment here that takes place only seven generations. This is the flood. It's seven generations, three chapters removed from Adam and Eve's exile from the garden, which allows us to see the catastrophic effect of the fall in just a short period of time with all the descendants of Adam. Descendants whose heart intentions are described in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, as evil from youth. And this includes Noah. And this also includes each and every one of us in this room today. Because our hearts, as we've seen through our study of Ephesians, are, are born naturally evil, dead in our sin, children of wrath. And whether we admit it or not, we deserve God's just judgment for our sin. Ah, but in an act of God's providential grace, he spared Noah, along with his family, from the judgment that they deserved. But every other man, woman, and child was completely destroyed by God through the flood, meaning the entire lineage of, of Cain was wiped out and erased from the planet by God. Quite literally, the flood was a reversal of creation. The division between earth and, and waters that God established on the first day of creation has, has now been undone. There, there was now, once again, nothing but water and then sky and then a single boat. A single boat, a single vessel floating in the vast nothingness of water. One boat. Imagine that. Being on that boat, one boat completely surrounded by a constant reminder of God's judgment. The boat itself serving as a reminder of God's immeasurable grace. But once again, like the garden in the midst of judgment, we see salvation coming forth. As God graciously and providentially preserves the lineage of the promise made in the garden Seven generations prior. Thus, it's easy to see why the early church presented the ark as a symbol of Christ. And some of the earliest historical drawings of Christ are, are represent, representations of, of an ark uh, affixed to a cross, indicating Christ is our ark. He's the vessel of mercy and grace that we sinners once safely inside, can safely ride through the, the flood of God's judgment that we deserve. 
Friends, that's real hope. This is, is real hope, even in the midst of the darkest of times. And it's offered today to everyone who believes. But now if the genealogy just stopped right here, it just stopped, we would each drown in the judgment that we deserve, but it doesn't, which is why we have hope, like real hope. So picking back up with the genealogy, we, we see that Noah fathered Shem, and Shem father, fathered Arphaxad, and Arphaxad fathered Canaan, and Canaan fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber, and Eber fathered Peleg, and Peleg fathered Ru, and Ru fathered Surak, and Surak fathered Nahor, and Nahor fathered Terah, and Terah fathered Abraham. Which brings us to Genesis chapter 11 and 12. Now, 10 generations removed from the flood, and the Tower of Babel has fallen. There's no longer just one people speaking one language, but many different people groups scattered all over, speaking many different languages all over the face of the earth. Confusion abounds. But once again, we see salvation coming forth in the midst of God's judgment. As God chooses Abraham, a pagan, childless man to establish his covenant with. And it's a covenant that we find in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3 that says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Meaning, God is making the way for every tribe and tongue and nation to be blessed by his grace. He's making the way for those he scattered at the Tower of, of Babel to be reunited once again as his people. And he's working out every last detail to make it happen, to make sure it happens exactly according to his will and his purpose. Just look with me at Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. God tells us still childless Abraham infertile, unable to have children, then not only will he be the father of a great nation, he says, know for certain that your offspring, again, remember, an offspring that he hasn't had yet, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Verse 14, but... I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So at the very beginning of God's covenant with his chosen people, while Abraham and Sarah are still childless, God tells Abraham, that his descendants, again, descendants that he hasn't had yet, the people of Israel who don't exist yet, he's telling them they're going to spend 400 years as slaves in Egypt before they return to the promised land. So after many more years pass, God's, God opens Sarah's womb and he blesses Abraham with a son. And they name this son Isaac. 
And then Isaac fathers Jacob, whose name will later be changed to Israel. And he will have the 12 sons, one being Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his older brothers. Eventually, he will rise to second in command of all, of all of Egypt. And unbeknownst to him, he'll be used by God to continue the promise that was made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. As Jacob's entire family moves to Egypt to be cared for by Joseph during this, during this famine. Grace upon grace upon grace from God. Otherwise, they die of the famine. And so does God's promise, but he's preserving his promise here through Joseph. But little do they know that several years later, they will end up in slaves in Egypt for 400 years, just as God had promised way back when to, to Abraham, which while it's hard to understand, is a means of God's grace. A reminder that just because we can't see how God's plans make sense, seem confused to us, doesn't mean that they aren't lavished with love and aren't lavished with grace. Even right now in our present circumstance, such grace abounds even if we cannot see it. See, what we are witnessing is that through every single detail of human history, God continues to demonstrate he's in control of all things. All things, working all things to fulfill his will and his purpose and so don't think for a moment this doesn't apply to our lives as well. This isn't some story that we're, we're telling. This is our story, a story that we're very much a part of. And, and sometimes when we're in the midst of, of our story, we, can, we can't see the big picture. We don't see the light in the, in the end of the tunnel. We, we lose sight of the forest for the trees. Think about Adam and Eve. How will anything come from the loss of a child? How could anything good come from this? Abraham and Sarah, longing, wondering, like when will God ever give them the desire of their heart, the desire for a child? The pain of infertility. Joseph, wondering how this season of trial is ever going to end. So many questions. Questions similar to the ones that we may find ourselves asking right now. When, oh Lord, why? Answers that don't seem to, to come quick enough or don't come to our liking or our satisfaction. But let's learn from these events to, to zoom out away from the present and, and attempt to look at the bigger picture. And in doing so, let's, let's, let's dive back into the story where we can't forget it was Joseph's older brother, Judah, it was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. He was the brains behind the plan, if you will. But it's also through the genealogical line of Judah that the divine promise will continue. The brother through whom the lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, will come forth. As Judah goes on to father Perez, and Perez fathers Hezron, and Hezron fathers Arni, and Arni fathers Admin, and Admin fathers Aminadab, and Aminadab fathers Nashon, and Nashon fathers Selah, and Selah fathers Boaz. Boaz brings us to one of the greatest love stories in all of the Bible. As Elimelech moves his wife Naomi and his two sons from Bethlehem to the country of Moab, 
But no sooner do we, do we start this story than we learn that Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi with just her two sons in the land of Moab. And then we're told that these two sons take Moabite women to be their wives. And this is not a small detail because the people of Moab were a terrible people. A people that wouldn't even exist if God's people would have done what they were told to do in the beginning and wiped them out when they entered the promised land. And yes, God told them to wipe them out, women and children and all, but they didn't. And because of Israel's disobedience, the Moabite women were the very first ones to seduce the Israelites into worshiping false gods. It's an event that resulted in the death of 24,000 Israelite men dying. Lesson being for these Israelites, don't ever go near a Moabite woman again. But that's exactly who Naomi's two boys marry. Again, in direct disobedience to God's command in Deuteronomy. And then tragically, Naomi's two sons die as well, each never having any children and leaving Naomi with two Moabite daughters-in-law who she releases to go back to their families. But Jeremy, that sounds more like a tragedy than it does a love story. Ah, but just wait. Because one of the daughters-in-law, Ruth, refuses to go. She tells Naomi in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. And from here, Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. It's starting to sound a, little, a lot like Christmas here where Ruth goes out into the fields to gather food. And when she does, she just so happens to find herself in the field of a man named Boaz who just so happens to be a man who is wealthy, loves God, and needs a wife. And on top of that, he just so happens to be the relative uh, under Jewish tradition that is eligible to redeem Elimelech's family, meaning he would be financially, financially responsible and own everything that Elimelech owned, take on any debt that Elimelech had and care for the family by marrying someone in the family. So short story, even shorter. Boaz agrees to redeem Ruth. But first, first, he, he recognizes that there's someone who comes first in line, who has the right to redeem her first. So Boaz, being an honorable man, goes to his relative, this first in line, and he tells him that Naomi's land can now be redeemed, and the man agrees to redeem it. But then Boaz adds one more caveat. Oh, by the way, Naomi is a daughter-in-law. Uh, Naomi's daughter-in-law needs redeeming, and she herself is a Moabite. Well, let's just say that that bit of information changes everything. As the potential redeemer quickly changes his mind and says, nah, nope, not going there. Boaz, you're, you're free to do as you wish. So what does Boaz do? He sweeps in and redeems the widowed Moabite woman. Hallmark, here you go, right here. And as climactic as this is, this is not the climax of the story. 
As Ruth chapter 4 verse 13 tells us, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And what's the child's name? Obed. What a great name, right? Obed. And who is Obed? He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, meaning Moabite Ruth. He's the great-grandmother of King David. David, the young shepherd boy from Bethlehem who God providentially chooses to be king over all of Israel. And this is where the story gets really exciting. As Boaz fathers Obed, and Obed fathers Jesse, and Jesse fathers King David, and David fathers Nathan, and Nathan fathers Mahatha, and Mahatha fathers Mena, and Mena fathers Mele, and Mele fathers Elakim, and Elakim fathers Jonam, and Jonam fathers Joseph, and Joseph fathers Judah, and Judah fathers Simeon, and Simeon fathers Levi, and Levi fathers Mahat, and Mahat fathers Joram, and Joram fathers Eleazar, and Eleazar fathers Joshua, and Joshua fathers Ur, and Ur fathers Elabadam, and Elabadam. Fathers Kosum and Kosum fathers Adai, and Adai fathers Melchi, and Melchi fathers Nere, and Nere fathers Shiltiel, and Shiltiel fathers Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel fathers Resa, and Resa fathers Joanan, and Joanan fathers Jodah, and Jodah fathers Josek, and Josek fathers Simeon, and Simeon fathers Mattathias, and Mattathias fathers Math, and Mahathath fathers Negai, and Negai fathers Esli, and Esli fathers Nahum, and Nahum fathers Amos, and Amos fathers Mattathias, and Mattathias fathers Joseph. But not that Joseph. And Joseph fathers Jani, and Jani fathers Melchi, and Melchi fathers Levi, and Levi fathers Mahathoth, and Mahathoth fathers Heli, and Heli fathers Joseph. Yes, that Joseph. Joseph, who was the adoptive father of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born in the city of Bethlehem, the city of David, because King Caesar calls for a worldwide census and for everyone to return to their hometowns. See, God has been and continues to sovereignly work out every single detail in all of human history to accomplish his will and his purpose of bringing himself glory through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're so, so quick to observe the big things like we just did, those big pivotal moments in history and agree like, yes, God is in control, in complete control of these things. But at the same time, at the same time, we so often forget and sometimes even deny that God is in control of the little things as well. Take the genealogy, for example. God promised in Genesis 3.15 that the serpent's head was going to be crushed by the Messiah, a long-awaited one, a descendant of Eve, who was to be a direct descendant of Seth. But what if? What if one of the lions would have gotten loose in the ark? and ate Shem? Or what if Noah didn't follow the instructions of building the ark to a T, and the ark sprung a leak? What if they would have gotten sick and died? What happens then? Or take Boaz, for example. So Ruth just happens to show up in his field, 
And then she just happens to show up at his feet in the middle of the night. And her mother-in-law just happens to be a widowed woman from Bethlehem whose husband is related to a kinsman redeemer, Boaz. But what happens to the genealogy if Elimelech and Naomi never move to Moab? Or if Boaz refuses to redeem the Moabite Ruth? And then there's King David. Like, what if Goliath would have defeated him? What if the rock would have missed? What if Saul would have killed him? What if he had never seen Bathsheba? Or what if Bathsheba didn't take a bath that day? Or maybe she took a bath at a different time that day. And what if he hadn't had an affair with Bathsheba? Or had her husband killed or or married her? What, What happens then? Oh, and let's not forget Joseph. Jesus' adopted father. Because remember Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which prophetically says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me the, the one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Meaning from you that the promise made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, will be fulfilled and the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. But it would never have happened if Caesar Augustus hadn't called for a worldwide census for everybody to be registered in their hometowns. And Joseph would have never traveled to Bethlehem, the city of David, his hometown, if Moabite Ruth hadn't lost her husband, hadn't moved to Bethlehem, hadn't been redeemed by Boaz, hadn't conceived Obed, who fathered Jesse, who fathered David. And that doesn't even begin to factor in all the other details surrounding Mary and Joseph that led to the journey from Nazareth to begin with. You're saying, Jeremy, but guess God's in control of all this. Absolutely. That's the point. The reason it works out the way it does is because God is in sovereign control. See, God is so sovereignly in control of all things that even the little things are working to fulfill his divine purpose. And this just isn't head knowledge for us. This isn't just theology that we can say, oh, yeah, I know this. No, this is in the trenches, Monday through Friday, theology. This is belief, a truth, a tool in your theological tool belt, if you will, to cling to when your child and your children begin to grow up. And whether they're ones who are in your arms right now or whether they're teenagers or young adults that you're sending out and off to college, they grow up. They grow up way too fast. And you as a parent, you're scared to death that he or she or those around them of what decisions they might make. And it's taking everything within you as a parent. Not just to be like, you know what, we're going to lock you in the room for like the next like 30 years of your life and throw away the key and we're just going to look out for you here. Because you just don't know what's going to happen. Or when you're in the midst of a difficult week, a difficult month, huh, a difficult year, and you find yourself maybe feeling depressed, uncertain. Maybe you find yourself beating yourself up over past sin. It's when you have a, a difficult decision to make as a family, and you've prayed about it, you sought advice, you read your Bible. 
We still don't know what to do. But a decision has to be made. We've all been there. So you, you make what you believe is the very best decision that you can make, the most biblical decision that you think you can make. And then you're like, did we make the right decision? We could go on and on. But a healthy understanding of God's sovereignty is that what ultimately helps us sleep at night is this. That even in the midst of a pandemic, we can know with certainty that he really is in control of all things. And that all things really are working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Why? Because his word tells us so. But I would be remiss if I did not mention that even though God is in complete control of all things, we are still fully responsible for our sinful actions. I mean, yes, it was God who told Abraham that his descendants would spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And Joseph even told his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God, he meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. But Joseph's brothers, no mistake, they acted in sin. And they were fully responsible for their sinful actions. And it was ultimately their sinful actions that led the people of Israel to being slaves in Egypt for 400 years. But think about it. If it had not been for their sinful actions, the genealogy promised in Genesis chapter 3 wouldn't have been, would have been wiped out by the famine. But were they right to do what they did? No. Then there's the story of Boaz and Ruth again. Should Naomi's sons have married Moabite women? Absolutely not. Why? Because God told them not to. But if Ruth hadn't married Naomi's sons and her husband hadn't died and they didn't move back to Bethlehem and she hadn't gathered food from Boaz's field, Obed would have never been born, meaning Jesse would have never been born, meaning King David would never have been born, meaning none of the other descendants of the promises of God would have been born. And speaking of David, was it right for him to have an affair? affair? No. Was it right for him to have Uzziah killed? No. But what we see time and time again is God using the direct disobedience of his children, of his chosen people, to carry out the very plan he has set in motion before time ever began. But that doesn't mean that we have a license to sin. It just means God's plan is way smarter, more elaborate, and more incomprehensible than we can ever begin to imagine. Friends, rest in the certainty of God's sovereignty in these uncertain times. Now, I'm not about to say that I have all this figured out, but I do know this. The only way for us to make sense of any of this is through the cross of Christ. Because through every single detail and every single judgment through all of human history, salvation is coming forth, just as God promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
as Jesus Christ came to do what Adam could not do and what Noah could not do and what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah could not do. He came to do what Boaz and Obed and Jesse and David could not do. He came to do what none of us in this room could ever do. As Jesus, being fully human, as human as any of us in this room, came and lived an absolutely perfect life, a sinless life. But Jesus, after living this sinless life, then willfully and obediently offered himself up as our perfect sacrifice, taking the place of everyone who believes, bearing the full wrath of God for our sin, lavishing his love upon us, not because he needs us or because we deserve it in any way, but lavishing his love upon us because as we studied in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And church, this is the meaning of Christmas. This is why we celebrate and remember the first coming of Christ and so eagerly long for the second coming. Christmas is the celebration of the future gloriously breaking into the present. It's God's fulfillment, promise after promise after promise in his perfect timing, in his perfect way to fulfill the divine purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him in heaven and on earth, all united in Christ. So if you want four takeaways from this sermon, here they are. One, God is sovereign over everything. Two, all of human history finds its yes and amen in Jesus. Everything from creation forward, all pointing us to Jesus. Three, God always fulfills his promises. And four, his story is our story. Meaning you can be a part of this family tree if you trust in Jesus as your only hope in life and in death. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what grace we see from you throughout all of human history. What lavish love and what undeserved grace. We ask now that you use your word to give us the ability to, to see the bigger picture to trust in the midst of the most uncertain of seasons and to continue to walk by faith as we follow after Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and respond to God's word through singing of songs.